just met. You know, if you're in Dallas and you meet another Yankee fan and you're like, oh, you like, you're, you're from New York too. There's like instant fellowship there just because you're in Dallas, you know, where, where you don't belong. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, family, on the other hand, isn't instant. Families take time to develop and to grow over, over time. You know, fellowship has its limits. You can do things for your friends to, to an extent, you know, if you're, you're sick, a friend might be kind and bring by some soup or something like that because, because they're your friends. But, but there's a limit to how much friends can do. If you find out you've got a condition and you're going to need multiple surgeries over the ne next 12 months and you're not going to be able to work and you're going to need someone to care for, you're probably not going to just crash with a friend for that. Hopefully, Perhaps you'll have a family member who can take you in and who can pay that attention to you and who can take care of you there. Because, you know, the nature of family is there's kind of no limits. It's one of the problems with it, right? In uh, fellowship, everyone is equal. You know, fellowship, a bunch of friends get together. It's just a, a group of friends. But when families get together, there's a recognition that there's different roles in the family, right? You know, there's the grandparents, the parents, the the kids, the, the uh, grandchildren, the, the brothers and sisters, there's, there's all these different roles. There's sort of a, a recognized role. And, and part of the reason families work, or to the extent that families work, is because those different roles are, are recognized and exercised. And, and uh, you know, but, but sometimes these things get disrupted. We've got a problem in our family. I'll just uh, confess this to you. We have, you know, you, get the, you have the family gatherings, and sometimes there's too many people there to fit around one table, so it naturally falls out that you have the, the kids' table and the adult table, right? And the problem in our family is that Grandpa always wants to sit at the kids' table, <laughs> which will be fine, except the kids don't want him there because they got to talk <laughs> about things that they got to talk about things that, that you know grandpas can't handle. Uh, so, uh, but but generally, families work because because people recognize their roles: the kids, the parents, the the aunts, the uncles, and, and, and another thing about families, you know whose family, and then, then hopefully if you're, if you're not a, a scary family, you have a family and then you have friends and people, who, people who, who come maybe for holidays, people who are friends of the family who are involved and, and participate. So uh, part of the family, you know, the whole concept of family is there's this unity and this diversity that kind of operate at the same time, a shared identity, but then different roles in, in, the, in the context of that. And, you know, as the church, for the church to be, become an organization that can really have an impact, one of the things we have to do is go from being a fellowship where we're all just kind of hanging out and getting coffee together to being a family where we're working together and committed to one another and, and collaborating on a much bigger and more complicated process. And so, uh, uh, or, complicated organization and, and that's the process we're engaging in over the next six months at our church in our denomination our tradition we call it the process of getting organized although that's a technical term not not an actual state of affairs <laughs> ever but but in that process we recognize who who are people who decide they're going to be members of our church who wants to just uh, kind of continue to be a participant but as a friend not a member and and also in that process we recognize people as elders and deacons those are the 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 uh, offices we have in our church and this is all dictated by the bylaws of our church and so so you know it's not like we're going to sit down some afternoon and, and make stuff up but we've got a, got a set of bylaws we've got a church constitution 
that's part of the, the uh, denomination we're a part of, and we'll just follow the process that's laid out there to uh, select elders and deacons and, and to recognize members. And, and you know, this is kind of a, a big step for a church, kind of like, you know, when you, when you move out of home and then, then perhaps, you know, those of you gone through the process, you, you get married, you have your own kid, and then you realize, well, we're, we're a family now that's independent of the families that we came from. We're a family of, that, that's a, kind of standing alone. And so that's the process we're going through right now. We're, we're overseen by other, by, by a, a, a group of people that's not a part of our church, but through this we'll become a self-governing church with, with uh, leaders, elders, and deacons who are part of this congregation, who this congregation has nominated and this congregation has elected. So, so that's, that, I'm looking forward to that because that, that's, that's going to position our church, I think, for greater impact and for greater leverage in our community and also and also create a structure that I think will will uh, will prepare us for what God has for us in our next stage uh, you know sometimes we feel like we don't want a family or don't don't need a family but you know practically speaking you see a child without a family what what is that child that child is an orphan and and so the Bible's design is for for followers of Christ to, uh, to be part of a family. You know, this is a challenging process, but one of the benefits of this process, I think, is that through the course of it, we'll discover, you know, some of you guys will discover gifts you didn't know you had. Some of you guys will discover callings you didn't know you had. Some of you will discover, will discover abilities you didn't know you had, or, or you'll be stretched and challenged to do things you didn't know you could do. But, it, but, it's, but it's challenging at the same time, you know, the thing about fellowship and friendship is fellowship and friendship is always fun. Have you noticed that? But you know why it's fun? As soon as it stops being fun, you ditch those friends and friends and you find someone else. You know, and, and so and but family often isn't fun, right? <laughs> some, some of you, I, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you were dreading going home for Christmas? You know who you are. But but, you know, some, sometimes family's fun. Sometimes Family's not so fun, but but even then it's family, so you uh, so you you roll with it. And sometimes you look at the people in your family, and you're like these people are just weird. And, uh, you know, I, I think it was summed up in a book I saw. An author wrote a memoir of his extended family, and the title of the memoir was "Why Do I Love These People?" <laughs> and, and sometimes sometimes family makes you ask those questions. And and you know, to be honest. Here's, here's the challenge with it. it. You know, if you have an issue with your friends, it can ruin your weekend, right? You can have a really bad weekend because you have a falling out with some friends. But, but the thing is, by next weekend, you'll probably have some new friends. So, so uh, the party goes on. But, you know, if you have an issue with family, sometimes that can leave a mark that lasts a long, long time. It can ruin a large part of your life or even your life itself. And I know over the course in a room like this, you know, a lot of people have had a bad experience with family. Maybe your family of origin was, was really troubled or something like that. So much so that you don't really want to have a family of your own or you resist the idea of, of being a part of a family yourself and you're, you're committed to making it on your own as a result. And I know also some of you have had the experience where you've had a, a really bad experience with church 
over the course of your your days of going to church and and I think sometimes people are attracted to a loosey-goosey church that meets in a school for the same reason it's because well well this doesn't seem like it's got that organization and there's no no crazy elders or deacons hanging out there meddling in my affairs so so I, I like this and 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 you're like oh no these people are getting organized I'm it's time time to move on but uh but uh, you know I would just uh, Say, say that, that uh, you know, for all of us, whether it's talking about a, a building a family or building a church, uh, you know, it's as we build a healthy family or as you build a healthy church that you create a strength and resilience and the support that we all need to work through life and to go on our pilgrimage through life. But, but you know, the structure is not what makes these things work. It's not the structure per se, but the structure creates a context where you can fit in the right people and where we can serve God the best. And so the structure is what, what, optimizes, uh, what optimizes the gifts and the talents and the calling of all of us and optimizes the, the church in the world. And uh, so 1 Peter 5, this passage we're about to look at, gives us a picture of what a faithful and godly church leaders actually, how they actually function. And there's five principles, and I'll just go through them. There's five, but, but they're quick, so, so don't worry. Won't be here all day. The first principle that, that works for everybody, a, a key principle of faith, is the principle of humility. Peter says, all of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up in due time. A basic principle of the Christian life, a basic principle of Christian leadership, a principle that distinguishes Christian leadership from other kinds of leadership is the essential component of humility. I think of humility as kind of the, the oil that keeps the gears from grinding. You know, when things are rubbing together, uh, that it can create a lot of friction and when people are living in close quarters or, or trying to work together there can often a lot of friction develops as a result of that but but if there's humility then that friction is somewhat allayed and so you know in our families in churches and in society one of the things that could make all of our relationships and all of our organizations work a lot better is if we could exercise humility and especially in the context of the church in the context of a pe of people who are united around worshiping God humility is a basic essential and the second one is the principle of servant leadership the methodology for leadership in the church is is the term servant leadership you know that that's that's the new testament dynamic that to lead is to serve and and the reason for that it comes from the founder of the church jesus you know the story in in john 13 you know what happened this was the very last supper you've seen the, the painting of the last supper right and and there was an awkward moment before they got down to having the last supper and that's because someone had set up this room for them and someone had laid out the meal for them and someone had put everything in place but there wasn't anyone except jesus and his 12 disciples in the room and so they were sitting down to have the Passover, which is like their, their most formal, important meal of, of the year. And Jesus knows that he's about to be betrayed and about to, to be crucified and all this stuff is happening. Oh, it's all coming together at once. And there's something awkward. 
it's really awkward. Have you ever sat down at those those family meals where there's like an elephant in the room and nobody wants to say anything about it? That, that's what was going on there. And, and the awkward thing was they weren't really hygienically prepared for to eat that meal because they hadn't all washed their hands and their feet. And that wasn't something you did yourself. That was something that someone would do for you. And whoever provided the room hadn't provided a servant to wash the feet. And so the disciples are all sitting around saying, well, who's going to volunteer here? And everyone's thinking, well, I think it's uh, James's turn, or I think it's John's turn, but it's definitely not my turn. But nobody's doing it, and they kind of know, you know, we can't eat till someone does it, but no one's going to do it. And then Jesus finally gets up, and they're like, oh, uh-oh, he's mad at us. And then he, you know the story, he goes and he takes a basin of water, he takes a towel, and he works around to all the disciples, and he washes them. And then he gets to the end, and they're all kind of shocked because they're like, what did he do that? And he says to them, you call me Master and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, your Master and Lord, have washed your feet, so also you should wash one another's feet. So Jesus sets the example of servant leadership. And so he, he makes it clear that in the church, among his disciples, among the followers of Christ, to lead is to serve. We lead by serving. So we lead through humility within the church. We lead by serving within the church. And the third thing is we lead by example. Peter says, not lording it over those entrusting you. In other words, not trying to control others, but being examples of the flock. In other words, he says, don't try to control others, but just try to control yourself. And that'll be a triumph enough. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the things I've noticed in the church is I've worked with churches over the years and worked with different boards of elders going through different things is, is sometimes it's, it's so frustrating in the church or anytime you're with an or, a group, any group of people, it's, it's getting people to do what you want them to do or getting people to do what needs to be done. And I just remember something that made an impression on me as a young young pastor, I was visiting a, a group of elders in a church that was having some struggles, and they were trying to figure out what, what they were going to do with, uh, uh, you know, budget deficits and people leaving the church and general unhappiness. And one of the elders stood up and said, I think the problem is that our, that our church is just spiritually dead. And I looked around at the group of elders, and, and I wanted to say, I think the problem is that this group of elders is spiritually dead. <laughs> But I didn't have the seniority to say that, I just thought it. And I made a note, though. I made a note because there's something absurd about a group of elders saying, well, our church is spiritually dead. If they're not saying it and then getting on their knees and calling out to God to have mercy on the church and calling for God's grace on the church and urging people and urging themselves to go closer to God, right? It almost makes sense. If you want the, your church to be revitalized and you're the elders of the church, you should be seeking revitalization yourself. And so the methodology Jesus has for us to make an impact on those around us, make an impact on our sphere of influence, whatever that might be, is to lead by example, not lording it up, not trying to control people, but setting an example. And, you know, when we, when we think about it that way, then it, it, it's really annoying because it's much easier to point out the issues other people have than to really face the issues that we have, right? And yet, yet, yet that's the core of the, the challenge for uh, those who would, would have a positive impact on anyone around them is to lead by example. 
because the hardest person really to change is to change ourselves. The hardest person really to lead is to lead ourselves. So we lead by example, we lead through service, we lead in humility. And then the fourth thing, and this, this is remarkable here, is you lead, in order to lead, you first have to empty your ego. The great danger of taking leadership, the great danger of taking a position of leadership, like being a, a pastor or an elder or a deacon, is that, that it can go to your head, right? And we've all known arrogant people in positions of leadership and, and how that, how that, how that made things difficult to work with him. But, but now P Peter is interesting. Remember who Peter is, was? Peter was, was kind of important. He was, he was one of the first disciples who Jesus called, remember? And he wasn't just one of the original 12. He was also one of the inner circle of three. Remember Peter, James, and John? Those three were like the three key disciples. And it wasn't just that, but Peter was... Peter was also one of the most insightful disciples. In, in, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to the disciples, who do you think I am? And Peter stands up and speaks for the disciples, and he says, we know you're the Messiah, and we know you're the Son of God. And he got it right. I mean, Peter, Peter had some insight. Peter, Peter was the first to confess that Jesus was the Messiah, the first that, to confess that Jesus was the Son of God. Uh, he was a pillar in the church at this point, 40, 50 years after Jesus had ascended, he was, Peter was the, uh, was one of the pillars, one of the foundations of the church. Here he is writing a book that we'd be talking about 2,000 years later. And yet, here he's addressing the elders of the church. He's addressing elders in, in all the church, these little churches he had planted. You know, little churches just like ours who had elders just like, you know, just, just regular guys like, like Adam and Ben. And, uh, and, 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 uh, and, you know, diff just regular people. And he says to them, you know, I mean, you can't get any more regular than Adam. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just, just these very, very uh, you know, outstanding, but, 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 but within the normal range. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> but, but, but here's the thing. Peter the Apostle is speaking to these people, the elders in his church, and he says, I appeal to you as just a fellow elder. I'm one of you, and a witness of Christ's suffering, and also one who will share in the glory to be revealed. He's saying, you know, there is a glory in all this, and there is a glory we long for, but it's a glory that we're all going to have. Not, not a glory that I'm going to have as Peter, but a glory that we're all going to have as those who are connected to Jesus. See? He's saying that Peter is, is saying that the, the connection he has with these people is that he is simply one of them. The connection he has with these people is that there's a glory that everybody who follows Christ will have, and that glory is sufficient for us, and we don't need to invest our ego in this. You know, we talk about the danger of ego with anybody who takes a position of responsibility or leadership or, or has some success and things like that. But for Christians, the antidote to that is to remember that ultimately it's the glory of Christ that we have. And Peter, our friend Peter here, is a, just a great example of that. He looks at all these young, young people and all these, these regular guys who he's, he's in, as installed as elders in, in these churches that have been planted over the years, and he says, 
I just appeal to you as a fellow elder. He doesn't pull rank on them. He doesn't claim anything other than the fact that he is one of them. So, so in church, the qualification and, and the key to being able to lead within the context of the church is having the ability to empty out your ego and to focus on the glory of Christ. And, and as Peter continues, he says, when the chief shepherd appears, we also will appear with him in glory. And that's the only glory, the only weight that we need. So Peter empties out his ego. He leads by example. He leads through service and he leads with humility. And then the final one is, and this is maybe the most important one, there has to be this focus on grace. The last, the thing that strikes, that strikes a lot of people about this is Peter gives one more qualification to himself, one thing that sets him apart. He says he was a witness of Christ's sufferings, which is an interesting thing for him to do if he's going to pull rank with these guys and remind them of, of his status as an apostle to say he was a witness of Christ's suffering because Peter actually witnessed a lot. He could have said he was a witness of Jesus' miracles. He could have said, well, I was a witness of the transfiguration when Jesus' glory was revealed. I was a witness of, of the resurrection. I've seen the risen Christ. He could have said, I was a witness of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and I was the preacher of Pentecost. Or I appeal to you as one of, the, one of the foundations of the church. But instead, he of reminding of them of things like that, he, he describes himself as a witness of Christ's sufferings. And why is that unique? Think back to the story. Maybe some of you know the story of Jesus, of, of Jesus' last days, of Jesus' suffering. Remember how it all happened? As it's, as it's coming up, that Jesus goes with his disciples into Jerusalem. Remember that? And as he's traveling into Jerusalem, he keeps saying over and over again, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to, get, I'm going to be crucified, and then three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. He keeps saying that, and then he says, you know, and, and by the way, you guys are with me right now, but as soon as it gets bad, you guys are all going to disappear, all going to deny me and betray me. And Peter says to Jesus, there's no way that's going to happen. When we're going to stand with you, we're going to fight with you, we're not going to let anybody arrest you, we're not going to let any of those things happen. And Jesus says to him, remember Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times, Peter, you especially, since you're the one with the big mouth. And then, then remember what happened? Jesus gets arrested. All of his disciples run away. And, and then uh, and Peter kind of hangs around, around, around the periphery to see what's going to happen. And he's just trying to blend in the crowd, but he can't because he's a a country bumpkin in the middle of the city. So you know, you know how that how that looks sometimes. But but he, he can't blend in and someone someone comes up to him, some little girl comes up to him. He doesn't even get confronted by the Romans or or by authorities. A little girl comes up to him and says, Hey, I saw you with him the other day. You're one of his friends, aren't you? And Peter's like, No, I don't know him. And then another person comes up to him and says, Hey, you're you're with that guy from Nazareth who they just arrested. And Peter says, no, I tell you, I don't even know the man. And three times he's confronted, and three times Peter denies it. And, you know, this was the low point in Peter's life. And, and, and uh, 
you know, the, the most humiliating and, and pathetic thing that, that Peter ever did. But the problem is, it's also a famous part of Jesus' story. I think from the very beginning when Jesus' story was told, everybody knew the story of Peter, that Peter was the one who said he was going to stand with him, but then denied him. And so Peter had to own his failure and own, his, own, own this, this embarrassing shortcoming from the very beginning of his ministry. I mean, it made me think, you know, I'm, I'm really glad all of my lowest moments aren't recorded in Scripture for everybody I've ever met to see. You know, from, from the very beginning, everybody knew the story of Jesus, knew the story of Peter's denial of Christ, of Peter's failure, of Peter's shortcomings, and that just was part of his identity, not just his denial, but then if you know the story, obviously he was restored by Jesus and restored to his place of leadership. So here, as Peter is giving his final exhortation to the leaders, he reminds them of his deepest failure. His qualification is that he denied the very Savior who was suffering for him. And his part of his qualification, part of who he is, is his very humiliation and failure. But that opened the door in Peter's life so that he could experience God's grace. Everyone knew it, so they knew that Peter wasn't Peter the great apostle because he was some kind of great man. They knew that Peter was the great apostle because he was a recipient of God's amazing grace. Because even though he absolutely failed in, in the most critical moment, Jesus was able to restore him. So Peter's life was a testimony not to the power of human potential, but to the amazing character of God's grace towards people who fail. And that's the heart of Christian leadership. In Christian life and in Christian leadership, the place where you're going to experience the power of God in your life is the place of your deepest weakness. The place where you're going to experience the grace of God in your life is in the place of your deepest failure. The place where you're going to experience the restoration of God in your life is going to be in the place of your deepest brokenness. The grace of God, ultimately, it's only for sinners. And so Peter's life story, and you know, the reason Peter was the one who had to deny Christ was so that Peter could be the great example to all of us that Jesus will restore even those who deny him. And through his deep failure, he had his deepest success. And that's going to be true for all of us. The way that God's going to reveal himself to you and the way that God is going to use you is in the place of your deepest struggle. And the very thing you think might be the thing that disqualifies you for serving him, if you can bring it under the Lordship of Christ, if you can bring yourself to apply the grace of God to that thing, that will be the path through which you're able to serve Him. Someone put it this way, we heal through our wounds. Or as Paul said, when we are weak, then we are strong. Because for all of us, to be a Christian is simply this. To be a Christian at its essence is this, as we look at the sufferings of Christ, as Peter did, we look at the sufferings of Christ and say, 
he died for me because I was so broken and so flawed that I could not redeem myself. And then again, we look at the sufferings of Christ and we say, he died for me because he loved me so much that he gave himself for me. And that's the hope for all leaders. We're under the great leader, the perfect, gracious leader, our Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, it's, it's, it's normal. It's, it, it would be expected that all of us would be cynical about leadership in general. Some of you are very cynical about families in general. Uh, and we're cynical about, about all of these things because human nature is what it is, and we're all, we're all broken. But if we find our glory purely in our connection with Christ, and we recognize our failures and brokenness apart from Him, then the promise is that through Him and through us, through Him, we can be the people who He uses to reveal His glory all around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Peter's life and testimony, that you took this, this guy who had failed so publicly and so blatantly and made him a pillar in your church. And I thank you for the hope of the gospel, the hope for all of us, that you can take us in spite of our failures, in spite of all of our shortcomings, or, or even through those things, show us your power, show us your ability to restore, and then use us to bring restoration in this broken world. Make that a reality for us, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.